Well, as you um, may have heard, even if it's your first time today, uh, we're beginning a new series. We just had four, what I thought were enjoyable and useful weeks in Philippians. But uh, today we're starting a series in Luke. We have, a, we have sort of a tradition here that we like to start each year in, in one of the Gospels, focuses again on Jesus. And this time we're going to do something a little different. We're just going to go through some of the many stories in Luke's Gospel where Jesus is eating. And not just eating, but often it's a banquet. It's a sort of a special meal that he is engaged in. Now, this morning, at, at a, what time was it? It's here. At 5.25, I've got these two mates that I've known since I was about five years of age. Tom wrote, as he started to do as a ritual. Um, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I added it. Ian. Can you bless Robert and myself? What is the word for today? It's partly because Tom's become a Christian, but Rob hasn't, so he likes to suggest. I wrote back, quite honestly, I know it sounds a bit flowery. Uh, my friend, it is too beautiful for me to even get close to. And I meant that. I was struggling looking at how, you know, that it's just too good, this stuff. And yet, I really do feel we have a problem because the story we're going to look at is the one that was read from Luke chapter 5. It's fairly well known. If you had the great blessing, although it's a mixed blessing, of being sent as a child to Sunday school, you may have heard this story hundreds of times. Uh, Luke 5, when Jesus calls the tax, the tax collector to come with him. Um, towards the end, there was a bit of backwards and forwards. I wrote, love to keep talking, but I, I want to get back to this poor old sermon. I am a kazoo trying to faithfully render Beethoven's Eighth Sonata or Bach. Well, I'll try at least to get the right notes. And again, that's, that's what it feels like with this story. The more I've worked on this passage as we do, you know, as, um, before sermons, the more I thought, this is just much more wonderful than I ever thought it was. Because we pick the passages some way out and then we spend time working on them trying to make sure that we really hear what this passage is saying, hear the tune, and not just say, oh yeah, we know the story, bang, away we go. And so this is the first in a series on Jesus and meals that he had. The Bible and meals is a huge theme. One of the, the, about the second command that God gives in the Bible is to tell the people that he's made to enjoy the orchard that he's created, eat from any tree except just one. Go and eat, eat, enjoy. One of the last, or the second last picture really in the, in the Bible itself is a great wedding banquet. And in most cultures, including ours, wedding banquets are one of the great fun events to be part of. You know, friends, family, lovers in the air, beautiful food, expensive food. It, and that's the picture Jesus so often paints of where he's taking us to. So meals in the Bible is a big deal. Secondly, Jesus and meals is, well, I kind of knew it in a sense before we started to look at it more closely. It, it's, it's remarkable how often Jesus is at a meal. One scholar said huge amounts of Luke's gospel, Jesus is either on his way to a party, at the party, or just having left a party. And if the gospels keep telling us about this, even if we haven't noticed, it's worth noticing not just because it is a real feature of Jesus' life, but because the gospel writers actually think this is a worthwhile thing to draw our attention to. Some of the most wonderful teaching that happens, that we have from Jesus, comes in the context of a, uh, a party. 
a banquet. But of course, the significance of meals varies from culture to culture. In the culture of Jesus' day, you would never, ever have a meal with someone that you didn't accept as a friend, as an honourable person. We can, perhaps if, in cities where they do a lot of business, enemies can sit down and have a meal together while they try to work out how to cut each other's throat legally uh, in terms of business. Uh, but, but even for, in our culture, we'll tend to not want to have a meal with someone who we really don't like, or if we think they're a particularly despicable creature. Some years back, I, I thought I should have a meal or catch up with, and a meal seemed to be the only way we could do it, with a bloke who had done some damage as a sexual offender. At one level, a low level sex, but, but nonetheless, he'd done a lot of damage. But I thought, for a number of reasons, I... Now, a number of wiser friends of me said, don't do it, don't... You, if someone sees you, they'll think, you know, you're a friend of his, or, you know, you think he's okay, or you think he's been mistreated. But I thought I should, but I did notice that when we went to this place for lunch, I found a table as far away from the main entrance and as shadowed as I could, for fear that it would be misunderstood. Now, Jesus gets in serious trouble often because he's eating with the wrong people. He's sending out the wrong signals. What you do with evil people is you don't, you, you don't sort of treat them as a friend. You quarantine them, partly so they don't infect you and partly so that they might actually learn the attitude that they thought God had towards them. Jesus' meals constantly get him in trouble, as we'll see. Well... Let's, let's have a look at this. Let me play my kazoo and let's have a look at this particular passage from Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 26. Now, we're going to look at three things. Um, three. Jesus the invited, Jesus the invited, and Jesus the dodgy doctor. Um, this morning... For specific reasons, I put on a piece of music and I was toying with playing it during the service, but I thought, no, no, we've got too much going on. I remember the moment when, for the first time in my life, I heard an old bit of music. It's a duet. I'm not a fan of opera. It's not a comment about opera. It's just saying I've not grown into that, if I'm ever going to grow into it. But there's a famous duet by two blokes in an opera called The Pearl Fishers. Some of you will know it. It is one of those outstanding moments of music. And I remember the first time when I heard it, I was doing something else and I stopped. And I thought, my goodness, this is amazing. And the simple fact that it once didn't exist and some guy sat down with a pen and paper and wrote a few notes and bang. Um, music, like everything else, doesn't come by accident. But I listened to it and I fell in love with it. And I tracked down the music and I listened to it this morning and I want to encourage you uh, this afternoon, perhaps not during the service, don't duck out of the toilet and listen to it, but um, uh, just type into YouTube or Spotify or whatever where you may listen to music, the Pearlfishers duet, and it'll come up, these two blokes singing. It is the most extraordinary piece of music. It's so moving. It's two men singing that they're going to stay friends. That had a falling out over a gal, and they say, we're not doing that again. doesn't matter. And, and I think... In a sense, this, this passage is like that. It is a beautiful, very moving song that I think some of us have, like me, almost never heard. Familiarity breeds contempt, they say, or some, somehow perhaps it just puts a thick coating of dust over something 
So you just don't really sense the glory of it. So let's have a look at this uh, quickly in this beginning of series about Jesus at meals with people. Firstly, Jesus, the inviter. Verse 27. After this. Well, just before it, the verses you heard read was this. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were, they were filled with awe and said, we've seen remarkable things here today. So Jesus just sort of had this interesting interaction with Peter, with miracle collection of fish. Peter's response, he's got no idea who he's dealing with. Peter's response when he sees the miraculous power of Jesus is to fall at his feet and say, leave me. I'm a sinful man. He doesn't think he's the son of God. He just knows this guy is closer to God in a way that made Peter, oh, I, you know, that was fantastic, but I don't feel I can stay in your presence. Jesus goes on then and heals a man with leprosy, touches the man who would have been the first person that's touched him in years. You weren't allowed to touch people with leprosy. Jesus does and cleanses him in an instant. We still can't heal leprosy, at least most forms of it. And then Jesus heals a man who is crippled. But before he does that, as you remember, he forgives his sins. He deals, he sort of triages the bloke and deals with the really crucial thing first, which is the forgiveness of sins, before he heals him from his quadriplegia. And that's what remark. And then Jesus does something that his PR team would have known was an utter disaster and is one of the things that leads to his death. That is, he walks up to this guy who is the king of the basket of deplorables. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth and said, follow me. Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Now, many of you all know that tax collectors, I, I hope in a gathering this big, we've got people who are tax collectors. It's a very, very noble profession in our culture to get people to pay tax. It was completely unlike that then. Tax collectors were the most obviously evil, self-centered scumbags on the planet. At the end of World War II in France, as some of you know, amongst all the joy when they were liberated by the Americans, but you know, by you know, the Allied troops, at the same time, a number of people were killed and sometimes quite ugly. And they were people who'd collaborated with the Nazis. Because what happens commonly in countries is people hate the people that have overpowered them and taken, taken away their country, but they really hate their own people who collaborate with them uh, because there's something particularly ugly about that betrayal. Tax collectors were that. They did it purely for money. You had to be clever. You had to be good with numbers. You had to be able to make the presentation to the Romans that you would get them lots of tax. And then you could make as much money as you liked off the people. So the more you charged, the more money you kept. You gave the Romans a cut. You kept everything else. The Roman soldiers would protect you because they had to. Otherwise, tax collectors would often be murdered by their own people. If I became a tax collector, my parents would instantly disown me. You could not go to the temple or the synagogue to pray or to get, become a nicer person, although some we know sneaked in. It, it was a disgusting thing that they did. And we've got, you've, got to, you've got to sort of feel the visceral. It's a bit like, I guess, in our culture, someone who was a well-known pedophile who had done dreadful things to children over many years while they were entrusted to do other things. And you, you think, well, you shouldn't show warmth and friendship to that. That's a dreadful creature. So people say this guy was from the, he was the king of the basket of deplorables, to quote Hillary. And yet Jesus goes up to him in public and says, come, join me. Follow me. Come with me. He's only got a small group at that point, maybe four or five. And his four or five would have hated Levi. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, etc. 
this is in Capernaum. This would have been a guy they had had to pay tax to, almost certainly. And they would have not been happy with what's going on. But the crowd would have really hated it. And we're told in um, Luke 19, verse 7, that when Jesus talks to a tax collector in um, Jericho and says, I need to have a meal with you, I'll read it. Because it's not just the religious heavyweights, the spiritual gurus who don't like it. In verse 7, all the people saw this and they began to mutter. That's a, that's a, a dangerous word when people begin to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner, right? of a, whatever you think is the most disgusting area of sin. That's what they felt. And this is what Jesus does. He calls this scumbag to follow him. And that's remarkable. And I want to suggest to you, this is probably more important in some ways than the calling of Peter and James and John the fishermen. In fact, Luke doesn't, uh, doesn't even really tell the story of the, the calling of the fishermen from beside the waters. You get the, a bit of the story of Peter. He gives this as the example of what it is to be called to be a follower. And I want to suggest to you that Levi at this point probably understands the essence and heart of God and Christianity more than anybody else on the planet apart from Jesus himself. Because Levi knew who he was. Levi knew how hated he was. Levi knew how ruthless he was. That he'd sold family, nation, God, everything just for money. So their only friends tended to be other tax collectors and prostitutes. And even, even in those days, there was a sense in which people could understand how a woman could fall into prostitution through terrible poverty, etc. Whereas to become a tax collector was a cold-blooded decision out of greed. Jesus invites him to come with him. Come, follow me. What's the response? Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. He is at work. He does not put in his notice. He does not go and discuss with the Romans why he won't be handing in the money. He just leaves, get it, leaves his table, leaves his books, leaves probably his armed guard, and goes with Jesus. Jesus said, come, come with me. Uh, become one of my friends, one of my, walk down the road with me. Let me become the one who shapes and, in fact, governs your life. Levi can't believe it. All he would have got from religious people before then was was denunciations and assurances of hell forever, which is, in fact, of course, what he deserved. But that's not what he gets from Jesus. Jesus calls him and forgives him and befriends him. That's the offer. And surprisingly, Levi just gets up and does it. In Matthew's gospel, we're told this is Matthew who wrote the gospel of Matthew. Right? He went on to have a fairly useful life in his uh, midterm change. Well, that's the first thing, friends. Jesus invites people. Who, what sort of people does Jesus invite? Well, he invites good, honest, hardworking fisher people and others. And he invites the king from the basket of deplorables. Secondly, what does Levi do? Well, he gets up and follows. He becomes a disciple. That's clear. That's what he does. He joins that inner circle just where Jesus goes, he goes, what Jesus says they do. They, have, they get corrected a lot because the disciples keep getting it wrong like us. Right? Doesn't mean they're perfect, but... They're committed to learn and to go with him. Secondly, Jesus the invited. Verse 29. Then Levi held a great banquet. Not just a banquet, a great banquet for Jesus at his home. And a large crowd, not just a crowd, a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Now we know who the others are because later on, 
the, the group who are becoming Jesus' enemies say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They were people who were well known to be dodgy, right? or worse. So what does Levi do? He throws a party. The word for banquet is, is a word that we would describe as party, only banquet is slightly bigger and slightly more formal. It's a thing that's oozing with joy, expensive food, a choice of food, expensive wine, the very thing that the Bible keeps on promising to us, doesn't it? It's, it's interesting, isn't it? I think some of us might squirm a bit when you hear those bits that were read when I read from Isaiah 55 and then John read from Isaiah 25, the promise that God gives of the best of wines, the richest of foods. When I became a Christian, I got a letter from a... Uh, Christian guy at school's father uh, urging that I should become a, that you couldn't be a Christian and drink alcohol. Even as a baby Christian, I could see it wasn't the best argument. The intention was good. The damage that drug does is much more than heroin. Other things I can understand Christians saying we want no part of it. But the Bible's very, very clear that wine and the best of wines is a gift from God. And the invitation is constantly there. And, and this is one, this is a banquet. And it's not just a banquet, it's a mega banquet. Not a mega banquet, a mega banquet. Right? Big, huge. And there's a crowd of people there, not just a crowd, but a large crowd. There's a big event. Why is, why is he doing it? Well, we're not specifically told, except that it says, Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them. Levi just can't help himself. He can't believe what has happened to him. He woke up, it was the ordinary old day, can do his ordinary old profitable but hated work, and suddenly this amazing character, nobody quite knows what he is, but he can do things that no one has ever done before or after is inviting him to be friends, into friendship with him, to be a companion, a disciple. Uh, interesting enough, just, I've discovered this week, you know, these, I bought these bread rolls the other day, yesterday to be precise, I bought them for one reason, because at the Waniasa Bakery, there are all these sourdough, whole meal dough, do you know what these ones are called? Panini rolls. What does, what does panini mean? Well, it comes, as, as you'll know, from the Latin, panos, bread. So it's a bread roll uh, in Italian. But the crucial thing is panini, as our resident return missionary from Italy taught me, it means a small bit of bread. So it's a panini. The significance of that is this. Our word companion comes from the joining together of the word for bread and the with. To be a companion in many cultures is to be someone who you eat bread with. This is what it is to be in friendship with someone, in relationship where you eat bread with them. Jesus has called Levi to be one of those who's on the road with him. And he is a companion. He is a, a fellow bread eater with Jesus. Why does he do it? He wants to honour Jesus. Jesus is the guest of honour. Did Jesus get any say in who was invited? I don't imagine so, but Levi invited his friends, many of them, and the disciples were there. It's fun watching movies. I'm going to put up two clips on our Facebook site, our church Facebook site. Now, I understand lots of people are too wise to waste time with Facebook, but occasionally we put stuff up there that can be helpful. So my intention is to put up the clips from two movies about which deal with this 
meal. And it's fun watching them put it together, thoughtful directors, and many of them are quite brilliant. But one of the ones from Zaffarelli, who's this uh, movie came out a million years ago, it was six hours when it first came out. By the time it got to Australia, it was down to two and a half, which was slightly more sensible for Australians. But, um, but it's got just about every scene from the Gospels. And it's a beautiful scene, uh, the way that he does it. But he actually has the disciples just outside the door. So you've got Jesus with Levi and all these dodgy-looking characters, men and women, and they're all drinking and eating and, and um, celebrating. The disciples are outside and the Pharisees are next to them. They're just sort of outside. They're not quite in there. But that's not the way that it's pictured here. The disciples are eating. They're in there eating. Now, they may have been near the door ready to get out in case any cameras came. Um, but they are eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. And the beautiful thing in, in the way that he does it, this is sort of a bit of director's license, Jesus says, he begins to tell a story. So he links a story that comes from a later banquet into the early, you know, people do that with movies, that's okay. He tells the story of the prodigal son, which has got the good and righteous son and the horrible self-centred ratbag son. And the horrible ratbag son comes back only because it's death from starvation or asking to work on the dad's farm and the older brother won't have a bar of it, although the father is really delighted. And the clever thing they're doing is they've got Peter the fisherman outside and he's trying to make sense of Jesus. He, he feels the attraction but he, and he, he's so uncomfortable with Jesus hanging with this dirty, filthy, scumbag tax collector. I mean, he's only been a Christian for half an hour. Who can trust that? But he hears the story. It's quite beautiful. And then in the end, uh, Peter and Matthew come together and Peter's got this beautiful thing where he says to Jesus, it's quite moving, he says, Lord, I'm just a stupid man. Right? And they, they have a hug. It's kind of nice. But he's saying, I just don't get what you're on about, but this is what God is on about. He's bringing, he's bringing the worst of people into the, into the presence of Christ where people can be transformed, forgiven and befriended. In a few hours, Levi's been completely transformed. He's sort of in the inner circle and he's gone from being the man that he was to a man who's bringing, giving other people a chance to meet Jesus by just doing hospitality, giving his old mates a chance to run into Jesus as he has. It's very beautiful. But it goes bad, doesn't it? Because the Pharisees, and this will happen again and again at Meals with Jesus, the Pharisees, who are the, we, if you've been in church for a couple of weeks, you've learned that when the Pharisees come, you go, boo, here's scumbags, you know, get, them, get them off, throw the popcorn, bad tomatoes, whatever else it is we do. Um, but that wasn't how they were viewed in their time. These were the best, right? These would, have, these would have been, well, the scribes were the officially taught uh, members of this group, like someone like me who's been to theological college, and the Pharisees were honest working people, like people who come to church, who learnt from the scribes. And these were the, really the most respected group in Israel. And they hated Jesus. And it's very important that we don't always think of other people of this, you know, everyone else. No, no, it's, it's the danger for us all to live with. They see Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and almost certainly with prostitutes and other sinners, as will come clear in the other parts of the gospel. And they say, why? They don't ask Jesus. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The disciples don't even try to give an answer. Jesus seems to overhear it and he gives the answer. 
He, Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is one of those great statements that Jesus gives a few times in the gospel where he tells you why he's come. And you want to let your ears prick up at that point. When Jesus, he'll tell you why he's come. No matter what you think about what he's come for. He says things like, I've come to lay down my life and things like that. Here he says, I've come to call people, but not the righteous, not the good, but sinners. He said, I'm a doctor. Who goes and sees the doctor? Well, mostly sick people, right? Or the worried well, people who don't feel well, right? But Jesus says, I am a doctor. You find me with sick people seeking. Someone is not excluded from me because they're sick. You know, any more than if someone is sick, you know, they say, go on, get out of there. You know, don't, don't waste the doctor's time. That's, that's where you should be, at emergency or at the doctor's. You see, the, the qualification Jesus gives for people to become what we would say Christians is that they are sinful. Now, we kind of know that, don't we? I don't want to bore you. But friends and mothers, I'm, I'm stuck with the passage that some clown chose a little while ago. Me, sorry. But, you know, we just chose the, the key passages about having meals. This is the first one, so it's obvious where to start. But it's so beautiful what it's saying here. See, because again and again, the people who are serious about God can't stand what Jesus does at these meals. So we've got this statement here. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Back in, in uh, Luke 15, before that beautiful chapter there. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he accepts them. He's taking and saying, we are friends. That's not what you're supposed to do. In chapter 7, Jesus himself uh, summarises what's happening. He says, John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The son of man, which is his name for himself, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's what they were saying. It is one of those things. You can't win with people who don't want to be convinced. John the Baptist... Didn't drink any wine ever. Jesus did, so they say he's got a demon and this guy's just a drunkard. Interesting that Jesus never bothers really to defend himself from that accusation. I don't think he was a drunkard or a glutton. He just doesn't, that's the issue. The issue is who am I doing it with and why am I doing it? And then Jesus gives the beautiful stories in, in Luke 15 of God's heart for the lost, the son, the shepherd and the coin. But here, friends, we see the old, old story of Christianity about what is it on about. See, Christianity is not about making good men better and bad men good. That was an old description of Christianity. It is false. I mean, it will do that, but that's not what it's here for. Something much more serious than that. Jesus says, I am the doctor. Humans are sick. Some know they're sick, like Peter evidently did when he had a glimpse of who Jesus was, and as... This tax collector clearly did, but as many of the religious people didn't. They didn't see they were sick, which is odd, because the Old Testament is really clear that none of us are righteous. So the Apostle Paul gives a whole list of quotes from the Old Testament in Romans chapter 3. He says, these are all from the book that the, that the Pharisees said they took seriously. It says, there is no one that is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. 
All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then the Apostle Paul concludes that part by saying, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Here's the good news. No matter how bad you are, you're no worse than me, that's for sure, or Levi, or anybody else. It was interesting this morning, two older men who I have enormous regard for um, came to me and spoke about how hard they found it to believe that they were actually okay with God. In fact, I told a story that I'm not going to tell now about a man who said to me, I'm not evil. Uh, We'd been talking about various areas of mistakes and sin in his life, and I thought it was appropriate for me to have a moment of honesty with him. He said, I'm not evil. And I said, you are, but you're no more evil than I am. And one of these blokes who works, does a lot of work for a Christian organisation, came out and he said, no, I didn't know you were going to tell, tell my story to the congregation. I said, which one? He said, I am evil. But what the Bible is saying, that's the truth of you. Are you good? Yes, often. Is there something fundamentally broken and wicked within you? Yes. Some weeks you'll feel it. Right? I was shocked that these two guys both said afterwards that they, they struggled to believe that they were okay with God because they struggled with their own sin and selfishness. They seemed pretty nearly perfect to me. Right? But that's what we're like, aren't we? Right? You don't know my wickedness. You don't know the areas where I'm just so sick to death of myself and think God would be well within his rights to say, Pally, 50 years, I've got almost nothing out of you, you know, in terms of your godliness. And, um, but that's not what the Bible's saying. Right? He comes to call sinners and he calls us to repent. So if you know that you're a sinful person and you're in the business of repenting, that is turning back to God. Let me read you what Martin Luther says. You know, you've heard of his famous 95 Theses that had something to do with the start of the Reformation. The very first one says this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, Matthew 4, 17, he willed that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. It's the first thing he says, it, that, that the whole life of Christians is repenting. That is, we commit ourselves to follow Christ, to go that way. We get out of our place and we say, right, I'm with you. We don't sign a prenup with Jesus. We say, wherever you want to go, whatever you want to change, I'm up for it. I can trust someone who's as loving as you. Right? And we go with him and we realise we've turned back or we've turned aside and we repent. We're just constantly saying, ah, and we, we keep going back. And slowly over time we get transformed and I think what also happens at the time is God shows us other areas that we need to change that we hadn't even thought of. Right? Deeper areas where we learn to become more and more loving. So the church, you see, is, is for sinners. One of the silliest things you hear people say about Christianity is that we're a bunch of hypocrites, right? Why do I think that's silly? Because this is the only organisation you can belong to if you admit that you're a sinner, right? All sorts of other clubs, if they discover what you're like and your sin, they won't let you join. Or you can be blackballed out of the club later. We're the only one, if you're not a sinner, you've got no place here, right? Jesus is not interested in you if you don't have sin. He, he's the saviour of sinners. So when you get a sense of your sin, either before you actually come back to Christ or as a Christian, that, is, that would be the silliest reason in a billion years to not come to Jesus. He is the doctor. That's where you go when you're sick. In the early church, they had, um, they had some serious uh, debates, particularly after one of the great persecutions on the church, where you know, most of the congregations were much smaller than this one. But uh, they were scattered across the Roman Empire and people had been put to death 
unless they would worship the Caesar as well as Jesus. You're allowed to hang on to Jesus, but you have to add this other thing. And some of them wouldn't, so they were put to death. When the persecution cleared up, a bunch of the people who had offered their worship to Caesar and therefore had not been persecuted, not gone to prison, not been beaten, not been killed, or the ones who had handed over the, the scriptures, which some did, some of the leaders, the ministers, had given the scriptures to the Romans, because the odd thing is, the picture you get of Christians is, we're the bunch who burned books. It's such rubbish. It was our books that were constantly being burned by the Roman Empire. But, um, and they were expensive because they were handwritten. So when the persecution died, a lot of the people wanted to come back. And the, the early church had to find, well, what are you going to do with these people? They have clearly, at a crucial moment, compromised. They have been ashamed of Jesus. And my sister was put to death. So why should they be allowed to come back? Or I was persecuted. No, I was tortured. And there was this whole argument, what is the nature of the church? And St. Augustine of, of North Africa won the day with his basic picture. It's not a gymnasium for super saints. It's a hospital for sinners. I'm a dreadful failure in many ways. You are a dreadful failure in many ways. Sometimes we delude ourselves and we don't see it. But when we catch a glimpse of it, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. I was listening this week to not only was I listening to Beethoven's Eighth Piano Sonata, but I was listening to some really classical music. There's a David Bowie song from a million years ago uh, where he sings. It's, it's, a, it's a lovely little tune. Uh, and it's called the, it's the, the title of it is called God Knows I'm Good. And it's a series of little stories. The first one I remember is the, this woman who's caught shoplifting. And the chorus is, God knows I'm good, God knows... And then, and then the various other stories. And this is the, no, he doesn't. He is omniscient, but he does not know you're good because you ain't good. But you'll hear people again and again say, I am good, I am good. We'll change the rules, all sorts of things. I'm not as bad as that person. That's irrelevant. Where the infection of sin has infected me, it might have infected you. The organs where that cancer has developed may be different. But we, he's the doctor. It's so wonderful to have such a doctor. A doctor who will keep us going. This, there's a guy, let me see if you know who this bloke is. I can't say his name properly. His name before he became famous is Jorge Mario Bergolgoi. Anyone know who that is? He's got a pen name. Jorge Mario Bergolgoi, otherwise known as Pope Francis. Okay, that's much easier to say. Anyhow, in one of his first uh, interviews, they said, who is Jorge Mario Bergoglio? They're asking, who are you? He said, I'm a sinner. Right? Perfect. Who is he? That's who he is. But he's a sinner with a saviour. He's a sinner, I take it, who's put his trust in Jesus. That's what it is to be Christian. And this is important for us to remember. This guy here, John Newton, um, as he got older, he said he, he, he was struggling with bad memory. He was the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He was the guy who was a slave trader. He was a captain of slave ships. And they did terrible things to the slaves even before they sold them. It was a, and, and he got saved. And then later in his life, he was massively involved in the uh, making slavery illegal, which the British did. But he wrote this. I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour. Friends, I'm sorry to bring us back to this most basic of things, isn't it? But that's what the passage does. He came as a doctor. Our reason for being right, is to stay in the hospital, serve in the hospital, invite others, as Levi did within hours, it seems, of being Christian, to call others 
to have a chance to know him by having the banquet. So that's where we're... Um, we don't want that one. That'll do. So, friends, I, this is the... Jesus invites Levi. He is then invited into this beautiful banquet and then he explains why he's come. He's the doctor and what a great doctor he is. That fella, Georges Mario, Pope Francis, wrote once, and I just, I just need to correct him because he's mistaken on this. <clears throat> uh, that's partly a joke. But he, is, he, he says this, the church is like a field hospital after battle. Now, where I think that's strangely wrong is this. It's not after battle, it's during the battle. Right? After the battle, glory. Right? Full healing from our struggle with sin. So it, it, that's what we are. We help each other. We keep, and that's what this does. Isn't it interesting? Jesus sets up a meal, right? A bath and a meal are the two ceremonies that Jesus sets up. And it's to remind us of two things. The cost that we can enjoy this health and freedom and forgiveness and befriendedness and also the meal that we're heading to. It's looking back and forwards. But he wants us to know that. And that's, that's what he's on about. Well, I hope that's helpful. I found it helpful. Sorry I've only got a kazoo. But maybe the Holy Spirit will help us to sense the wonder uh, of the heart of God here. Right? That he is the friend of sinners. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are just not like what so many religions teach us that you are. You are the lover of sinners. You sent your only precious son to seek and to save us and to suffer and to die for us. Lord, you are more gracious than we can cope with. Help us to keep believing in your wonderful grace in Jesus, uh, that we may live not hung up about our own weaknesses and failures, but thoroughly excited about your glorious grace in Jesus. Uh, so, Lord, we pray you'd write this into our hearts and then send us out to love others in Jesus' name. Amen.